The title of this evening's talk is Practice Here and There, Practice Everywhere. So, here we are, coming to the end of our experiment of a longish period of mostly silent intensive practice here. Soon to be taking yourself, taking your practice out there, wherever out there is for you. Which for most of you, or maybe all of you, will entail a much longer period of intensive practice which uh, with the possibility of wherever you go, wherever you are, there's your practice. I think that many of us come to the end of retreat with some thoughts and feelings that aren't so dissimilar to those that we came into retreat with. For many people, there's a feeling maybe of excitement and readiness to go into an extended period of intensive practice. Though for some, just before it's time to enter in, there may be the feeling of, well, I'm not really quite finished yet out here. Just a few more days, another week, so that I can do everything that needs to be done and then I'll be ready to go in. And it seems that some of us have similar thoughts when it's time to come out. An excitement and readiness to go out into the larger world. And maybe there's such thoughts as, well, just a little more time, maybe a few days, maybe a couple of weeks. Maybe some of you might even think, well, a month (laughs) to do what needs to be done, and then I'll be finished. Then I'll be ready to come out. Then I'll be ready to go back out there. And for some, sometimes on either end, the going in and the coming out, there may be some degree of reluctance, resistance maybe some fear of the unknown or a fear of the seeming known or maybe essentially just fear of change fear of ending one way and entering into another so you might check in with yourself and see if there might be some of these kinds of thoughts and feelings similar conditioned patterns within your heart and mind that are coming up now at the end of this retreat that you may have experienced as you were preparing to come here or that you may have felt at the onset of this retreat. And of course we may not feel anxiety in either direction entering into or coming out of retreat there's certainly the possibility that one might feel a clean clear open readiness and a happiness without any particular expectations or worries about moving on to the next thing the next phase and the next form that life will take. At a retreat that I taught some years ago, one person described coming out of a retreat as feeling like she was descending, landing, feeling the force of gravity, as she expressed it, coming back to earth. There's a beautiful piece that was written by the American astronaut Russell Swikert regarding his experience in outer space that I'd like to share with you. 
you recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes. Because now you're no longer inside something with a window looking out at a picture. Now you're out there and there are no frames, there are no limits, there are no boundaries. You're really out there going 17,000 miles an hour ripping through space, a vacuum. And there's not a sound. There's a silence the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery you're seeing and with the speed with which you know you're moving. And you think about what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this, this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God, to have some special experience that others cannot have? And you know the answer to that is no. There's nothing you've done to deserve this, to earn this. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment, and it comes through to you so powerfully that you're the sensing element for humans. You look down and see the surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time, and you know all those people down there, and they are like you. They are you, and somehow you represent them. You are up here as the sensing element, that point out on the end, and that's a humbling feeling. It's a feeling that says you have a responsibility. It's not just for yourself. The eye that doesn't see doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there. That's why you are out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life. And you're out there on that forefront, and you have to bring it back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. And it tells you something about your relationship with this thing we call life. So that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet, and you and all those other forms of life on that planet, because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference, and it's so precious. And of course it is a change. And so reflecting on the supports available to you as we begin to make the change out of retreat life into the larger world. One change being the pace of life. At least outwardly, life appears, appears to and feels like it moves a lot faster outside of intensive retreat. And yet we're supported as we move into the larger world with some understanding from our weeks of practice of how quickly and incessantly things change within our own body and mind. How quickly and incessantly things change all around us, even in the slow pace of life in retreat. This understanding, this wisdom, is a great support and a great protection as we make this change from retreat practice to practice in the world. Reconnecting with the larger world in the day-to-dayness and the moment-to-momentness in the incessant and often fast-paced changes that happen in our daily life. And we've had some taste of the impersonality of change. We've tasted that we can't stop change and that even though we might try, we can't hold on to anything. And maybe we've tasted how painful it is to try. As concentration and mindfulness developed over these two weeks, we've had some glimpse that whatever it is that we experience in the body or the heart, the mind, that any of these experiences 
come together because of myriad causes and conditions. In truth, an unfathomable number of conditions coalescing in that moment. And then it, whatever it is, changes quite quickly or just simply disappears. These tastes, this understanding, has a deep and a beneficial effect on how we think about things and how we relate in this world. There's more clarity in relationship to our deepest goals and aspirations and what we choose to do or not do. There's more clarity in relationship to the choices that we make. More connection and clarity in our relationships to others. More clarity in what's important and what's appropriate what's wholesome and what's truly respectful and kind. These tastes, this understanding, is a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. Here in retreat life, life is pared down. A life of much more simplicity than most of us have outside of retreat. So this is certainly a change from here to out there. Life in retreat offers very little outside distraction. We sit, we walk, we eat, we do our yogi job, we sleep, we've practiced moving the body in authentic and maybe some unique ways. And you have learned to see, not just look, but to see through the eye door, which opened the door to drawing. You've written words from a growing place of trust, spontaneity, and selflessness. And you've spoken just a little every few days. And within this container of simplicity, you've been supported to mindfully pay attention to what occurs in the body, heart, and mind. And been invited to see, to know in the mind, is the mind, is the heart opening to, connecting with, receiving what is? Or is it disconnected, separated? With all of this practice and learning, bringing us closer to seeing and knowing what brings suffering and what brings ease, calm, joy, and a sense of well-being. We're learning to recognize, respect, and care about all of these cycles within our mind our heart, and our body. This seeing and knowing is also a great support and a great protection as we reconnect with the larger world. All of us, here and everywhere, are so similar. No matter who we are, where we live, our culture, our age, our ethnic background, our color. Really, we're just variations on themes. We're all totally interconnected, totally interdependent on this small planet that we all share. Sila, virtue, living ethically, respectfully, living harmlessly, wends its way into being the ground of our life quite naturally as our understanding of what brings suffering and what brings ease deepens and blossoms in our heart. As we come to see and know this through intensive practice, 
It affects how we communicate, how we use language, and it affects our actions. Seeing into our own heart, our own mind, affects and informs the motivation behind the words and the actions that we take out in the world. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit. And habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care. And let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. The possibility of engaging the refuges and the precepts as part of our daily practice, maybe beginning our day chanting them to ourselves, is quite a powerful aspect of encouraging the purification of our thoughts, our words, and our actions. And there's a particular rendition of the precepts that I offered the very first evening of this retreat that was written by Stephanie Kaza from Green Gulch Farm Zen Center that I'd actually like to share with you again because it's particularly (coughs) relevant to daily life in the larger world. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to kill. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not take what is not given. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not engage in abusive relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak falsely or deceptively. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harm self or others through poisonous thought or substance. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to dwell on past errors. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak of self separate from others. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not possess any thing or form of life selfishly. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harbor ill will toward any plant, animal, or human being. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not abuse the great truth of the three treasures the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. For me, as I'm sure also for many of you, over my years of practice in the simplicity of the retreat setting, I've been inspired and motivated to simplify my own life, to live my daily life in a way that serves, that supports the process of the purification of the heart, which is intimately related to the process of liberation. And sometimes this happens through the conscious intention to let go of particular habits of distraction. And as practice deepens, there's more and more often a letting go, a simplification that unfolds quite naturally with no feeling of forcing anything. We more and more easily and naturally relinquish the habits and the distractions in our life that don't serve this awakening process that we've committed ourselves to. And very often it's around quite 
ordinary, very mundane aspects of our life. So a personal, very mundane example. There was a time when when I would get into my car and I would automatically turn on the radio. And at some point, I began to notice it as a distraction. And so I decided not to turn it on all of the time. So I'd begin driving somewhere and my hand would automatically begin to move towards the radio knob. The force of habit is incredibly strong. And so mindfully I'd bring my hand back down. And at some point I began noticing the thought to turn on the radio. And then the choice was available to or not to. And looking at another change. In this simple and quiet space of retreat, there may have been some big days, some big events for you. An especially big day or big event uh, for you in retreat might have been something as mundane as laundry day. For me, there were times um, in earlier years of long intensive retreat when uh, laundry day uh, was such a huge addition to my day at times that I would find myself planning uh, for it or just thinking about it uh, before I went to sleep the night before. And then sometimes it would be one of the very first things that would come into my mind when I woke up that next morning. And I suspect maybe some of you know what I'm talking about. And how about the big event of the midday meal? What will we have for lunch today? Or in the middle of this big event of the midday deal, what will the midday meal? What will we have for lunch tomorrow? <laughs> or the event of having a one-on-one practice meeting. And in this retreat, the big day of the first day of the movement practice, or the scene drawing practice or the first day of writing practice. A poem by Nanao Sakaki, who was a wandering Japanese Buddhist poet who died a few years ago, and he calls this poem a big day. (laughs) Getting water at the spring, carrying firewood, chattering with the neighbor, The sun goes down, a big day. (laughs) Many years ago, Nanao used to spend time up at the Lama Foundation, which is just 30 minutes north of here. And he'd show up at Lama with his small knapsack and a sleeping bag and stay there for a few days. And they were always very happy to put him up. And then he'd head out into the mountains with just this, nothing more than he'd arrived with. And he'd often be gone for a couple of weeks and then be back at Lama again. A dear friend of mine was the coordinator up at Lama during those years and she told me a story about one of the times when Nanao had come in for a day or two from the mountains. And he asked her and another friend if they would like to come out to his camp for dinner in a few days. My friend was very delighted with this. This was something quite special. In fact, something that had never before been offered. So on the appointed day and time, my friend and the other invitee found their way to Nanao's camping spot by following his careful directions. And when they got there, Nanao was there, but there was no food ready or in view for dinner. 
and he told them not to bring anything, that it wouldn't be necessary, that there was a plenty of food. So my friend thought that maybe they'd made a mistake, that this was the wrong day. But Nanao was very delighted to see them and welcomed them heartily and said, well, now let's go out and look for dinner. <laughs> Find dinner, I guess is what he actually said. So my friend said that they walked and picked and dug various wild foods and came back and built a fire and cooked what needed cooking and had an incredibly delicious dinner. She said that they finally understood how Nanao could go out into the mountains for days and sometimes weeks at a time without, with almost nothing <clears throat> and come back strong, healthy, and quite happy. Once someone in an interview spoke about the simplicity of life on retreat as having a good taste. We taste it, this good taste. And we take it with us. It wends its way into our life in many small and sometimes bigger ways. As we all know, life outside of retreat can be quite complex at times. Our home and family life, our work life. And yet there are ways that we can let go of some of the complexity. And we often do this little by little as our practice deepens in and out of retreat. We make choices in relationship to the work that we do in the way that we spend time with partners, with family, with friends. We make choices in how we spend our free time. We really, truly have the possibility of simplifying, at least to some degree, every aspect of our life. We truly have the possibility of expanding and deepening this good taste that we take with us from the simplicity of retreat life. And of course there are some complex responsibilities and commitments that we definitely must continue with. The taste of simplicity in retreat has another very beneficial effect on our life outside of retreat. It affects and inspires the way that we expend our energy. What we put our energy towards, how we use and how we use our energy. Even in the midst of complex activity, relationships, and responsibilities. From our experience in retreat practice, we learn, we see, we come to know more and more clearly when we're off balance in the ways that we engage and use our energy. And we take this knowing into our life outside of retreat. As we intuitively and naturally find ourselves letting go of old habits, old habituated, unskillful ways of being and doing, we find ourselves connecting with more skillful, more wholesome ways of being and doing. And we begin to feel more balance within ourself and within our life as a whole. And we find that we have more energy and more time available for our life to more directly and clearly be our practice. So simplicity inwardly and outwardly in times of retreat as we reconnect to a larger world. Simplicity being a great support
and a great protection here and there. A great support and a great protection everywhere along this step-by-step journey. Considering our whole life as our practice, how can we develop and deepen our practice in the midst of our everyday lives? Really a most essential and important question. And of course the essential ground of this is that we develop, that we integrate a focused attention and mindful awareness based in kindness into all the dimensions of our being making our body, our speech, our actions, our thoughts, our feelings, our relationships, our work, our play, and our creative endeavors, all part of our practice. And we can find many moments throughout the day when we can just simply bring our attention to the sensations of the breath in almost any circumstance or activity. So from this perspective, it's really not so different from our practice in a retreat setting. Really all of the conditions and all of the relationships in our lives are wonderful mirrors for our practice the joys and the irritations, the annoyances and delights, the frustrations and the satisfactions, the likes and the dislikes. All that we experience in life in retreat and in life outside of retreat. All being the mirrors for our practice. A woman who sat a retreat that I taught in Israel a number of years ago and who had long before I met her um, lived in a spiritual community in France uh, that was guided by the philosopher and spiritual teacher Gurdjieff. She told me a story uh, that's really a wonderful mirror of a particular and uh, difficult life situation being the perfect practice in that community. She said that in this community in France there was an old man who was a very difficult, irascible fellow. He was quite messy and argumentative. She said he wouldn't cooperate, he wouldn't help with things, and basically he didn't get along with others in the community. She said that no one liked him very much, and that he himself didn't seem to like very many of the people in the community either. He tried for a long time to stay in the community, but it was very difficult for him as well as for others. So difficult that he finally left and went to Paris, because he just couldn't bear it anymore. Gurdjieff followed him to Paris and tried to convince this man to return to the community. But the man said that, no, he couldn't do that. He said it was just too hard for him to be there. So Gurdjieff finally offered him a monthly stipend to come back, which the man couldn't refuse, as he was a very poor person. And so he returned. When he arrived, everyone in the community was aghast. (laughs) And they were even more aghast when they found out that he was being paid to be there because they themselves actually had to pay to live in the community. So Gurdjieff called a meeting and he listened to everyone's complaints and this woman said, and then he just started laughing. And he said, this man is yeast for your bread. Without him you would never learn about anger, 
irritability, patience, and the heart of unconditional kindness and compassion. That's why you pay me and I pay him. <laughs> the conditions of our lives, the people in our lives, are all part of our practice. They're yeast for our bread, yeast for the purification of the heart and mind, yeast for our awakening, yeast for our liberation. There is one teaching among the 84,000 that the Buddha offered where the Buddha uses the metaphor of a mother who has four sons for the development and the flowering of the four divine abidings, metta, karuna, mudita, and upekka, unconditional kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. Each son, be because of his particular age and personality and particular karmic manifestations, calls forth from the mother one of the divine abidings. I have only three sons, but they've managed to be some of my strongest teachers in many, many ways over the years. <coughs> our closest people can often be some of our best teachers, just simply through them being who they are, what they need from us and what they give to us and what they show us. My two oldest sons, who are 46 now and are identical twins, continue to show me, to teach me a relationship that is quite rare. They're each other's best friends. And of course, although when they were little guys, they would fight with each other as children do. Over all of these years, They've never talked about each other or to each other in negative or judgmental ways. They never, really never, put each other down, no matter what one or the other is feeling, no matter what one or the other has done or not done, no matter how the other, other's life is going. And they're not each other's keeper. They've never been disrespectful or codependent with each other. And I think this is really quite a rare friendship. And sometimes I'm in awe of it. I learn from it. Every aspect of life is potentially a teaching. Every aspect of life has the potential to reveal the truth to us. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. As a bee seeks nectar from all kinds of flowers, seek teachings everywhere. Like a deer, that finds a quiet place to graze, seek seclusion to digest all that you have gathered. And a poem that's translated from the Turkish of Edip Kansavur. It's called The Table. A man filled with the gladness of living put his keys on the table, put flowers in a copper bowl there. He put his eggs and milk on the table. He put there the light that comes in through the window, sound of a bicycle, sound of a spinning wheel, 
the softness of bread and weather he put there. On the table, the man put things that had happened in his mind. What he wanted to do in life, he put that there. Those he loved, loved those he didn't love, the man put them on the table too. Three times three makes nine. The man put nine on the table. He was next to the window, next to the sky. He reached out and placed on the table endlessness. So many days he had wanted to drink a beer. He put on the table the pouring of that beer. He placed there his sleep and his wakefulness, his hunger and fullness he placed there. Now that's what I call a table. It didn't complain at all about the load. It wobbled once or twice, then stood firm. The man kept piling things on. The key to the door, the linchpin for the wheel of the cart that turn by turn by turn moves along this sacred noble path is first and foremost a focused concentrated attention that's grounded in mindfulness and kindness and it's true that there's some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of the focusing power of the mind that you've developed over these two weeks. A change from how it is in such in a retreat such as this as we connect to a larger world. And it's true that there's some change in the depth and sustaining quality of mindfulness and investigation from how it is in a retreat like this as we reconnect to a larger world. And although the same degree and depth of concentration, mindfulness, and investigation isn't usually totally sustained outside of the retreat setting, the concentration, mindfulness, and investigative capacities that developed along with the multidimensional facets of understanding, of wisdom that have blossomed for each of you in a retreat like this are a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. There's a change, but we don't lose it. Mindfulness, concentration, investigation, and the continuing blossoming of wisdom are always available to us. Many years ago, at the end of a two-month retreat with Sada Upandita and two other Burmese monks, I had a brief conversation with one of the monks. And I asked him if there was any advice that he might give me around taking practice into the whole of my life. And his response was this. He said, you need to eat to stay alive and be healthy. You need to sleep to stay alive and be healthy. You need to meditate to stay alive and be healthy. Pretty good advice. In terms of integrating your practice of a relaxed and focused mindful attention along with investigation more and more into your life, you might consider incorporating some of the movement practices and setting up some specific time for seeing, drawing, and writing into your weekly schedule. I'd like to share what I found to be an inspirational poem by a man named Red Hawk. 
he calls this an inquiry into art. The idea is to catch the moment and dance, to look at the world from both sides, like the farmer in Iowa who glances up from his plow startled, believing he has just caught a scent of the ocean. Looking up, he sees instead rain clouds and shakes his head, smiling. At his first nod, a gull bends brightly out on a band of wind dancing in the haze of rain. He looks to heaven and his face fills with rain. His hair floats on air. His shirt billows and gasps. He rises and flies west. And there are some practical and particular ways that I and others have found to be very helpful in bringing a simple yet direct and immediate concentrated mindful attention into our lives. One suggestion is that at the end of each hour of the day, take one or two minutes to just stop be still and simply connect with breath at the anapana spot, the touching point at the nostril area or in the belly. So however long your waking day is, that could be 15 to 30 minutes of a very directly focused mindful time. With each of these minutes, having an effect on the moments that follow. Another way to carry our practice into our daily life, a simple way to carry our practice into our daily lives, is to remember at moments during the day to touch into the physical sensation through contact. The feet on the ground. The bottom touching the chair the hands touching each other. Mindfulness and concentration are immediately connected with and strengthened each time we do this. I think the only hard thing about doing these very brief meditation sessions is to remember to do them. I know some people who put little notes to themselves around their home or in their workplace to remind themselves to check in. For instance, a note on the bathroom mirror. Breath. <laughs> or a little stand-up note on your desk at work or at home. Still breathing. Or meta now. <laughs> There was a fellow on staff at the Insight Meditation Society who worked in the front office who had a small stand-up note on his desk that said, buttocks, <laughs> reminding him to bring his attention to the touch points of his bottom on the chair every now and then. Walking meditation can be a very important and powerful aspect of our practice in the world. An important aspect of continuing to connect with and strengthen concentration and mindfulness. Many of us walk at least a few miles just going from place to place through a day and certainly through a week. And we can make some of this walking a time for practice. When I lived at IMS as a resident teacher for staff, my workroom and living space was up on the second floor uh, in the main building. And because I did many, many practice interviews with staff and had lots of meetings, I really didn't have time during the day to do any walking meditation. So I decided that every time 
I went up and down the stairs, it would be my walking practice time. And so after I made that decision, I did this on most days. At one point, a staff member came in for a practice interview, and he was, uh, he was obviously quite agitated. And with difficulty, he told me that he was very upset because I was ignoring him. He said he felt abandoned by me. He said that whenever he passed me on the stairs, I wouldn't even look at him. And he was wondering if I was angry with him. And I told him that going up and down the stairs was my walking meditation practice time, meditation time. And that I certainly had not abandoned him, nor was I angry with him. It's just that I was practicing as deeply as I could going up and down the stairs. Well, of course, this completely changed his attitude. And he told me he was very happy with me and told me that he thought it was a great idea. People may not always understand what you're up to when you integrate practice into your life in small ways. But do it anyways. Use your life wisely. It's really helpful to connect with others who practice. And we certainly can see and feel the benefit of, of this, as many of you have mentioned, in the retreat setting. If you're not connected at least sometimes with a group, even just a group of two or three to sit with once in a while, check in and see if there's a sitting group in your area. And if there isn't, start one which might mean just asking one or two people who you know, who meditate, or who would like to meditate to join you once a week or every other week. You can first sit together and then maybe read something out loud or about the teachings and the practices or maybe listen to a Dhamma talk CD, taking turns each week as to who chooses the reading or the CD, and then have some Dhamma discussion about what you've listened to or what you've read, and maybe also about your practice. It can also be helpful at times to pick a theme for a week or a couple of weeks to focus on. The Buddha, in a conversation with Ananda, one of his chief disciples spoke about the tremendous importance of connection with spiritual friends. And this is the Venerable Ananda speaking to the Buddha. He said, Half this holy life, O Lord, is good and noble friends, companionship with the good, association with the good. And the Buddha responded, Do not say that, Ananda. It's the whole of this holy life, this friendship, companionship, and association with the good. Use your life wisely. Use your energy wisely. Let every moment as much as possible be a conscious intent to practice. Meditation is one of the great arts in life, perhaps the greatest, and it can take place anytime, anywhere, when we have the intention to live awake. As we go into the larger world, if we're patient, and determined in our practice. It's inevitable that calm, tranquility, and joy increase. It's inevitable that peace increases, that wisdom increases. It's inevitable that our ability to live a beneficial and compassionate life increases. 
and another Nanasakaki poem. If you have the time to chatter, read books. If you have the time to read, walk into the mountain, desert, and ocean. If you have time to walk, sing songs and dance. If you have time to dance, sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot. <laughs> and I would add, in the time that you have, take time to let the body move. Take time for seeing. Take time for drawing. Take time for writing. And of course, take time to sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot. <laughs> and I'd like to close the talk this evening with two poems. One last Nanao poem as a tribute to him and as a tribute to our, pra our practice. And he calls this a love letter. Within a circle of one meter, you sit, pray, and sing. Within a shelter ten meters large, you sleep well. Rain sounds a lullaby. Within a field a hundred meters large, raise rice and goats. Within a valley a thousand meters large, gather firewood, water, wild vegetables, and amanitas. Within a forest ten kilometers large, play with raccoons, hawks, poison snakes, and butterflies. Mountainous country Shinano, a hundred kilometers large, where someone lives leisurely, they say. Within a circle 10,000 kilometers large, go see the southern coral reef in summer, or the winter drifting ices in the Sea of Ox. Within a circle 10,000 kilometers large, walking somewhere on the earth. Within a circle 100,000 kilometers large, swimming in the sea of shooting stars. Within a circle a million kilometers large, upon the spaced out yellow mustard blossoms, the moon in the east, the sun in the west. Within a circle 10 billion kilometers large, pop far out of the solar system mandala. Within a circle 10,000 light years large, the galaxy full blooming in spring. Within a circle one billion light years large, Andromeda is melting away into snowing cherry flowers. Now within a circle ten billion light years large, all thoughts of time, space, are burnt away. There again you sit, pray, and sing. You sit, pray, and sing. In closing the talk this evening with another poem by Native American poet Joy Harjo. She calls this poem Eagle Poem. To pray you open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon to one whole voice that is you and know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know, and can't know except in moments steadily growing, and in languages that are, aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. Like eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, circled in blue sky, in wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe, knowing we are truly blessed, because we were born, because we're born and die soon within a true circle of motion.
like eagle rounding out the morning inside us. We pray that it will be done in beauty. In beauty. Let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.